And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop. With elections around the corner and cannabis advocates in nine states giddy with anticipation, staunch opponents in the alcohol, pharmaceutical, and private prison industries are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to protect their interests. Must say, some people will say or do anything to support their point of view. I recently heard Yavapai County Prosecutor Sheila Polk declare that the reason ending alcohol prohibition was acceptable and ending marijuana prohibition is not is because alcohol was legal before prohibition began. And she went on to explain that cannabis was never legal before its prohibition. That couldn't be farther from the truth. In fact, archaeologists recently discovered Ayurveda texts dating back to 1100 BC in India. Evidence of the first use in industry exists in a piece of hemp fiber dating back to 4000 BC. The first evidence of its medical use was circa 3000 BC. And just three weeks ago, archaeologists announced that they had found 13 female plants inside of a tomb of a man buried 2500 years ago in China. Cannabis has been one of history's most widely used plants around the world. Marijuana has been used for centuries in healing, relaxation, and spiritual rituals. Hemp, the versatile non-psychotropic strain of cannabis, has been used for thousands of years with diverse applications ranging from food and medicine to textiles, rope, paper, and in the last century, biofuel, building materials, composites. Hemp is as much a part of the fabric of our country as the American flag, which Betsy Ross first sewed using pieces of hemp cloth. Benjamin Franklin's famed kite was flown with a piece of hemp string. The Declaration of Independence was drafted on hemp paper. Presidents George Washington, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson farmed hemp as a cash crop. Hemp canvas covered wagons as American settlers crossed the Continental Divide, and Levi Strauss made his first mining outfitters of hemp during the Great American Gold Rush. Henry Ford, a hemp farmer, designed his first Model T using hemp composites and ran its engine using hemp oil fuel. Moms made apple pies with hemp filling and doctors cured headaches and other ailments with a myriad of hemp concentrates. Despite the fact that it's indigenous to most regions in the U.S. and grows rapidly in adverse climates including drought without pesticides or fertilizer, Hemp has been illegal to grow freely in the United States since 1937. That's the topic of our show, and I'm very excited to introduce you to our guest. But before we do, Nate Nichols has our Marijuana Minute update with some hemp facts. What do you have for us today, Nate? Thanks, Snowden. Hemp producers across the country have benefited from recent changes at the federal level. Some of the most vocal advocates have been the senators from Kentucky, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Rand Paul. In a recent joint statement, they said, Each year, the United States imports over $75 million in hemp and hemp products from other countries. In fact, we are the world's largest consumer of hemp, with a domestic hemp market of nearly $600 million annually. 
If Kentucky farmers can capture a portion of that market, those dollars could potentially flow into Kentucky. In the Senate, we will continue to work to support the hemp pilot programs now underway and to help them flourish. We've worked to enact legislation that protects the importation of hemp seeds that are vital to our research pilot programs. We also sponsor, along with Democratic Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon, the Industrial Hemp Farming Act, which would amend federal laws to allow hemp to be grown for industrial purposes beyond just research pilot programs. Robert Hoban, a managing partner of Hoban and Fiola Law Firm, points out that so far at least 27 states have enacted laws that address the cultivation of industrial hemp. Fourteen states permit industrial hemp cultivation, and eight of those allow it for commercial purposes. However, even as the federal government loosens its control over the cultivation of hemp, a new point of contention is emerging. In early 2016, the USDA issued new guidelines that instructed organizations that certify organic farms not to certify any domestically produced hemp as organic until they release more guidelines. Hoban says, Various forms of industrial hemp have legally displayed the USDA organic seal for years, and many hemp companies in the United States gain certification to market their hemp products with the organic seal. Yet, the USDA deems organic hemp certification premature. It is evident that confusion exists among the regulatory agencies regarding the distinction between marijuana and hemp and the legality of the two. However, the Farm Bill expressly permits the growing of hemp regardless of other federal laws. Consequently, the recent USDA instruction seems to be yet another regulatory impediment to the industrial hemp industry's effort to maximize product safety, quality, minimize consumer deception, and satisfy the growing national demand for this versatile crop. He asks, if it's legal to grow hemp under federal law, why are we discriminating against nationally grown hemp? You know, and that, that's, that is such a big uh, problem, and I hope that within the near future, the farmers will be able to take advantage of this amazing industry because I think it would um, really help a lot of them to get out of debt. It's such a big industry. Thank you for that. Really appreciate it. I am really excited to introduce our guest, David Bronner, who is part of a family that has been manufacturing soaps using hemp for more than 150 years. David serves on the Vote Hemp Board of Directors, and as it, uh, he's now involved with the Hemp Industries Association, where he serves on the Board of Advisors as chair of the Food and Oil Committee. The Bronner family is also supporting Vote Hemp and the Hemp Industry Association's legal media, grassroots, and lobbying efforts to recommercialize industrial hemp in the United States. And um, I am really excited to have you here, David Bronner. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, um, I know that that your company um, is also a founding sponsor of Hemp History Week. Um, which is something that was launched uh, six years ago in May. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, um, Have Issue Week, uh, it's uh, kind of a promotional marketing education awareness uh, campaign. You know, um, as, as uh, prior comments you know, noted, the, um, the historical importance of hemp in the United States, um, you know, basically it was our third most um, important crop by acreage, um, you know, it was, it was basically one of the first laws of Jamestown, the first colony was, it was illegal not to grow hemp. You had to like use 10% of your farm to grow hemp. Um, and it's just been, you know, you know, part of the fabric of American history, but with the 19th 
37 Marijuana Tax Act and the prohibition of, of marijuana and subsequently industrial hemp, um, the government basically systematically uh, eradicated historical references like, to the point that the Smithsonian historically for the last 50 years, like in their fiber exhibit, has no mention of hemp, like, which is incredibly absurd. And, you know, Jack Hare in his seminal work, um, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, you know, did just amazing work uncovering the, you know, rich history of industrial hemp and its importance and that the founding fathers all, all were hemp farmers and, um, you know, all our clothes were made out of hemp, the, the canvas-covered wagons going west were, were, were hemp, everything was hemp. Um, and so Hemp History Week is basically about activists, um, you know, equipping activists around the country to um, stage events. Uh, well, go visit their local historical societies and find out what is the local history in hemp, because pretty much everywhere in America has a rich history of hemp. And, you know, to really kind of make it relevant in the local context to do some research. And then um, during Hemp History Week, generally, you know, throw some kind of event, invite a media and the public to come and just kind of show what, you know, it's been, um, you know, what the local kind of historical reality was with hemp, but then also to show the, you know, emerging hemp renaissance that we're living through right now that, you know, you know, unfortunately we, we spent 60 plus years here in the dark ages, but in the last 20 years, um, you know, industrial hemp has really um, blossomed globally um, with all kinds of, uh, hemp seed and fiber products now being introduced um, on the food side, the, the really high omega-3 essential fatty acid in hemp. Hemp is one of the few vegetarian sources of omega-3, which the American diet is, is chronically deficient in, and, and people will be, especially people over 50, or generally they'll be on these like fish oil supplements to get their omega-3. But then at the same time, the government's warning about the mercury and other environmental contaminants in, in these fish oil supplements. So on the hemp seed food side that's really been the market driver uh, on the omega-3 but then on the fiber side which is you know the really exciting um kind of application for a lot of us in the movement is you know the the potential for hemp fiber to substitute for for you know virgin timber for paper um for pesticide herbicide intensive cotton for textiles and clothes um so there's just like all these emerging um, markets and products using hemp as a sustainable feedstock, as you referenced, it's, it you know, grows like a weed. You don't need a whole lot of ag chemical inputs to grow it. Um, it just outcompetes the weeds, it, you know, and, and um, uh, you know, cotton by contrast takes, I think something like 25% of the country's insecticide. Um, so, um, so anyway, so Hemp History Week is just, you know, it's about just really showcasing um, the, the current marketplace and the current products um, and then also, uh, you know, bringing uh, more political pressure, you know, uh, equipping um, the public and activists with the tools and directing them to the, the website and to the hemp website so they can call up their senators and federal and state uh, uh, elected officials and just, you know, mobilize pressure. Um, and, you know, the, you know, the reality is, is, is industrial hemp is a non-drug agricultural crop. The rest of the world more or less is, is got with the program. Canada re-commercialized in 98, Europe five years before that. And, you know, unfortunately, we're just in the kind of heart of darkness here uh, with the drug war. Um, and it's just taken way longer than any of us thought to make the kind of progress we're finally making. Um, you know, personally, I'm very active in also the medical cannabis and, and adult responsible recreational space. And 
we're giving over a million dollars this election cycle to the different state ballot campaigns. And um, I never would have thought that that industrial hemp was going to, you know, that we were going to have to legalize across the board for, for industrial hemp to fully be free of the red tape. But evidently that's the way it's going to go. But, um, you know, at the same time, hemp has helped, you know, it's been part of the, one of the fronts in, in this battle to end cannabis prohibition, you know, along with medical marijuana and industrial hemp were just initial ways of really putting some body blows in the prohibition. And, um, so, you know, it's been good in that respect as well, but, um, it's still, you know, really disappointing that in 2016, the last year of Obama's second term, you know, we're, we're still kind of in a situation where we're, we're, we're limited to pilot programs in, in friendly states like Kentucky and Colorado. I mean, it's great that we've got, you know, Senators McConnell and, and Rand Paul and other champions kind of with us. And, you know, obviously it's inevitable. And we expect within six to 12 months, this whole charade is going to be over and we'll, you know, be fully able to compete in the global marketplace. Um, uh, you know, not just hand the largest market for hemp uh, fiber and seed product product products to the Canadian farmers and Chinese farmers and European farmers. Um, so we're on the cusp here, you know, finally it's disappointing. It took this long, but exciting that it's finally happening. Right. Well, um, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people listening may not be aware that hemp, which has absolutely uh, no psychotropic quality, like it's cousin marijuana is, uh, a Schedule One narcotic, according to the DEA, which it just seems completely absurd when, when you really look at its industrial use and the fact that you know if someone tried to smoke hemp, they'd get nothing more than a headache out of it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean that's, I mean that's, that's it. I mean cannabis itself is should not be in Schedule One. I mean not the the psychoactive, medicinal, and recreational varieties are, you know, it's 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 absurd. It's the safest therapeutically active um, medicine pretty much in existence and no one's ever died from an overdose of cannabis. Um, so the, the plant shouldn't be schedule one in the first place. And then industrial hemp, the varieties historically of cannabis bred for, for hemp fiber and seed have never been psychoactive. Um, they have very low levels of the, of THC. So um, they're basically, you know, taking a non-drug agricultural crop and treating it like heroin so, yeah, it's just, you know, and it just kind of goes to the whole hysteria at the heart of the drug war and that, especially cannabis prohibition, it really just kind of shows almost like a religious hysteria um, around cannabis. That Also, if you, if you think about it, David, there are so many industries that stand to lose financially if hemp itself is taken out of the Schedule 1, like, um, for example, um, the oil industry. Uh, oil and gas industry, you know, hemp is is a brilliant um, source of biofuel, and it grows it grows so much more sustainably without using petrochemicals, as you said, you know, with fertilizers and and um, pesticides and herbicides and all of those things. I mean, there are a lot of industries in there that would stand to lose money. Isn't that right? Yeah, um, I mean, I mean just on the on the biofuel front, I mean, ha- I mean, hemp does have a lot of cellulosic um, 
uh, biomass, and it's definitely can be um, a real good feedstock, especially for ethanol. Um, but that that potential application is going to hit when we can really scale hemp, like when we're just at another order of magnitude of acres. Um, and but you know your larger point, you're absolutely right. I mean, there there definitely are industries threatened by hemp. Um, although I would say that I would say the number one problem is the conflation of hemp with marijuana and with the pharmaceutical in, industry's opposition. Um, I mean, there are the textiles and the paper and energy as well. But um, when you look at just kind of where a lot of the opposition is coming from, it just tends to come, well, it comes from just the drug warriors, um, just this kind of culture um, within government. But then the pharmaceutical, like you, like in Arizona, like who's funding the opposition, you know, it's like big pharma. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it is, it is a problem. Cannabis threatens some very entrenched, industries and interests and 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 you know prohibition in the first place was in part um uh you know manufactured by industries that were then threatened or, and are currently threatened by by hemp production yeah uh chemical like dupont um lumber which would include hearst <laughs> paper industry um it the list just goes on and on but uh, your company is rather iconic in that it's been around forever. Dr. Bronner's Magical Soaps. And, you know, before people started catching on how ridiculous hemp uh, prohibition was in addition to marijuana prohibition, your company's been using hemp as a raw material um, emulsifier, really, in, in your soaps for 150 years I mean, this is your family's business, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, let me, just a point of correction. Actually, the we didn't start using hemp seed oil until 1999. Okay. Um, the I mean, it's the you're actually correct. Um, my grandfather's grandfather uh, founded, um, well, started the first soap manufacturer in 1858. Uh, a German Jewish soap making family in southern Germany, um, and the enterprise. We actually had three factories by the time. Uh, unfortunately, in the, in, with the rise of Hitler and Mariana coming over, the, the, the factories were Aryanized and my, Dr. Bronner's parents were, were killed. Um, and, you know, he brought his, his natural steel soap recipes with him to America. And out of the tragedy of the Holocaust, you know, felt urgently called that the next Holocaust in a nuclear armed world is we're all going to perish if we don't realize our transcendent unity across religious and ethnic divides. And that's, that's the moral ABC. And that's a philosophy on, on every bottle of soap we sell is basically him showing how the spiritual giants of every spiritual tradition were basically saying the same thing that we all have to get over ourselves and get down with each other and, and, and the divine source we're all children of. Um, and, but, um, you know, when I came in, like my granddad, um, I actually came up working for my dad and he had his own separate uh, company, although he oversaw the soap manufacturer for my granddad. Um, and my granddad was got sick in the early 90s and my dad was running a comp- his own company and Dr. Bronner's in the 90s. And then my granddad died in 97 and my dad, unfortunately, was diagnosed with cancer shortly thereafter um, and died in 98. 
um, but not before I'd already decided to come and work in the family company and was able to really spend a lot of really quality, amazing time um, trying you know, really learning the ropes. And, but one of the first things, and, you know, we had talked about this is like, you know, I was like, you know, Hey pop, you know, the, the, you know, hemp seed oil has got this amazing fatty acid profile and, and my dad being a soap maker, you know, he's like, wow, you know, check this out. You made a three, omega six, you know, this is really interesting oil. And we were, you know, did some customer trials with evaluating it as, as a super fatty ingredient. And what we found was that uh, um, it made the lather much smoother and less drying, just just a little bit, not too much. You didn't need that much, but just a little bit really improved the kind of skin feel and after feel of the soap. So in 99, we actually started to incorporate hemp seed oil into the basic recipe, which, you know, was the, the original recipe is basically a coconut olive-based soap. So just bringing in a little bit of hemp seed oil and swapping in for the a little bit of olive oil um that that happened in 99 um and you know and this is that right after canada had recommercialized you know we thought that america was about to do the same you know we you know like everyone were hoping that gore was going to win but then we got bush and that whole nightmare and um got into a huge fight with dea who tried to ban imports of seed oil and all that but um you know and and, and you know, truth be told, we we liked hemp, hemp, hemp seed oil and industrial hemp in general just because it's such a nexus of both environmental and drug reform or environmental policy and, and uh, sustainability and um, a way of opening up space, um, uh, you know, in the culture. You know, now it's kind of not a big deal, but back then, you know, putting hemp in the soap was a big deal. You know, yeah. was, you know there's a lot of resistance. Yeah. There were there were a couple of uh, like the body shop for example they started using some hemp products or you know some hemp material in their in their products, but um, something that you touched on that I I want to get back to um, in just a minute which is the the whole company philosophy of you know um, the uniting of of people across religious. Uh, backgrounds and all of that. I'd like to get back to that. But first, you also mentioned um, the big fight with the DEA. And one of one of my favorite stories about you, um, I wanted to uh, mention, I actually wrote about it um, six years ago, but it was you were there in front of the DEA museum in, I think that was... Was was it 1999 or something no, like that? 2000, 2009. Oh, 2009. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, you were in front of the DEA museum planting hemp seeds along with some other um, uh, rather famed advocates of hemp. And uh, they arrested you at that time. And you were heard on video yelling out that your children are going to look back on this time and think that everyone was crazy. And... I, that just sort of summed up for me the absurdity of of the entire prohibition and how ridiculous <laughs> they would arrest anybody for having hemp seeds in the front lawn of the DEA. Tell me about that day. Yeah, no, I, you know, absolutely. I mean, it was, you know, we were in the second year of Obama's first term and I think everybody was pretty dang disappointed by that point that, you know, Obama was a whole lot less progressive than we all hoped and that he had not 
removed any of the drug warriors that were driving policy under Bush. Um, you know, cannabis policy uh, was, you know, he was going after the, the dispensaries. And, and I remember Jack had a stroke on stage at, up in Portland. And, um, you know, it was just a frustrating time. It's like, God damn it. You know, and so that's when we kind of like we, we got to, you know, kind of put this in their face. And actually, you know, that was, I think, the first Hemp History Week, too that we, um, so we dug up the DA's lawn and at the same time, um, we had actually discovered the left in the Lester Dewey diaries that, um, that Lester Dewey was the USDA's own research, uh, chief scientist and researcher, um, who in the turn of the century was conducting hemp trials, hemp field trials, to optimize, uh, different hemp strains for different, um, uh, you know, product applications. And that that field, the Arlington Fields, was where the P- Pentagon is now sited. So that the, the government's own hemp fields uh, is where they built the Pentagon. And so, like, we were kind of dug up the DA's lawn, highlighting, you, you know, at the same time as we were highlighting, like, you know, the, just the, the hypocrisy of government policy with regards to hemp that, you know, that the government's own, you know, was growing hemp right where we were digging up the DA's lawn and getting arrested, um, you know, a hundred years later. Um, but yeah, we also, I also, we made, we made ceremonial shovels for the occasion because we knew the DA was going to confiscate them. So we put a little message and it was, uh, American farmers shall grow hemp again. Reefer madness will be buried. And, um, you know, in honor of Jack, Jack Hare. So, uh, they took our shovels and then, um, you were in jail for a little bit and got out. Um, but then we got more shovels made. So we all got shovels and, and they got to keep the ones we dug up there along with. <laughs> I just think that's such a, a, a poignant story for anybody who's like, you know, interested in, in the history of this movement. It just sort of set the stage for, you know, the, for people realizing the absurdity of all of it. And, yeah, and, 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 you know, it was also, like, kind of, like, driving, a, like, a stake into the heart of darkness or something, you know, like, just, like, little wooden stake in the vampire. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, no, it was it was a moment. And, you know what, here's another moment um, that's coming up is, like, so last year we had our first catharsis. Um, it, it coincided with the Drug Policy Alliance. Um, every other year they do a big uh, drug policy reform conference in D.C., and um, so we had this whole drug war vigil uh, last November and we got permission. We uh, a local artist built a temple kind of in the Burning Man tradition um, with a cage inside and a human figure and representing all the souls lost of the drug war. You know, their lives ruined and, and families ruined and, and had this very cathartic, um, like a, week, a whole weekend of people coming out and speaking about all their experiences horrible experiences and the injustice of the drug war and cannabis prohibition. Um, and then on that Saturday, uh, and I, I think the 18th, November 18th last year, we burned the temple in, in this kind of cathartic release and then had um, a lot of Burning Man DJs and infrastructure and art and did this big raid, like right on the Washington Mall, like right by the memorial. Um, and I bring this up because we're doing it again. And this time, it's going to be Veterans Day, November 11th to 13th, with November 12th being a big night. And it's going to be right on the Washington Memorial. 
we're bringing some two two huge art cars, uh, a Braxis, an anti-war machine, from the burn uh, to to the Washington Mall, and it's going to be in a pretty intense scene. And the theme this year is about healing trauma and the journey home from trauma, and about how cannabis, um, you know, it's, it's such a medicine for controlling the symptoms of PTSD, and so many veterans don't have access. Um, so we're going to do another uh, another big event, but you know, it's really important. Um, to activate, you know, right there in the kind of in D.C. And, you know, another thing we did is our, our director of social action is uh, Adam Eidinger, and he's um, he was the campaign manager for the uh, 2014 cannabis uh, legalization effort in D.C., um, and which we were the primary financial backers of. But, you know, and then I guess one more, one more uh, thing that was kind of fun is in 2012 – you know, three years after we dug up DA's lawn, you know, Obama still hasn't done anything. Um, and, you know, the, the, the hypocrisy is that Obama, as an Illinois state senator, voted th- three times to recommercialize hemp under Illinois state law. So, you know, and it was just so disappointing. And he wouldn't meet with the North Dakota delegation. North Dakota at the time was primed to go. They were, you know, they were a totally Republican state primed to go, you know, seeing all these farmers in Manitoba to the north, you know, killing it with him. Um, and, you know, Obama just, you know, continued to not, you know, work in good faith and do anything. Um, so I actually, uh, for the Hemp History Week in 2012, in early June, uh, we, we constructed a, a cage where I took, we grew out 12 big hemp plants and let them go to seed. Um, and I had a little oil press and I, I locked myself in the cage and with an oil press and a PA and I got towed into position right in front of the White House and some big billboards calling on Obama to let American farmers grow hemp again um, and just kind of yelling at uh, passerby and media and cops for three hours about, you know, the, the insanity that my family is sending hundreds of thousands of dollars to Canadian farmers in the middle of the worst recession this country's ever had. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, just, uh, you know, just really bringing attention on the whole, you know, ridiculousness of cannabis prohibition. You know, it's like we're handing this, you know, $100 million market or hundreds of millions to, you know, foreign farmers and processors. Well, why, do you, why do you think President Obama is still so afraid to act on this issue? You, you know, I mean, he's just, you know, he's like he he's not a fighter. He, he has this whole... I don't know, dream of himself as the great uniter or something. And that's just not what we need. We need fighters. And I think that personally, he's totally with us. He's a good guy. You know, he's just, he's maybe a little weak. Um, and just wasn't, uh, just politically unable to, um, or unwilling to really engage on these, the kind of more confrontational and spicy fronts. You know, I mean, to give him a break, obviously, he had to deal with, you know, a horrible Congress and, you know, the Republican backlash. Um, but, you know, that said, I mean, you know, he could have come into office in 2008 and done a lot of damage. He had a mandate. He could have used it and he squandered it. And it was just really disappointing. So I think just kind of being politically inexperienced and naive um, and just, you know, and just not being the kind of fighter that we needed him to be yeah so. i um bernie sanders actually um 
made it part of his platform when he was running in the primaries. And it, I've tried to really get a handle on um, what the Clinton camp would be willing to take on as far as that's concerned. And it seems as though their platform has adopted some of the criminal justice reform, which includes um, working toward um, uh, rescheduling of, of cannabis and that sort of thing. But do you think it just doesn't go far enough? Have you looked into it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think political change, I mean, the reality is, is that these elected leaders, very few of them actually lead, they follow. And what we're doing here with all these state, you know, campaigns and, and wins is creating kind of an inevitability, a political inevitability and opening up the space where the national leaders can, you know, will have enough comfort to do the right thing and, and expecting them to lead. I mean, every once in a while you get a leader, you get an Abraham Lincoln or, or whatever, but that's unfortunately, you know, kind of few and far between. Um, and, and generally you just got to like kind of win as a movement um, state by state. And, uh, you know, whether it's gay marriage or uh, minimum wage or, you know, pretty much every social movement and cannabis being no exception. So I think um, that with Hillary that, you know, eight years ago, I would expect her to be no better than Obama. But, you know, I think, you know, given, uh, you know, after this election, hopefully we sweep California, Arizona, Maine, Massachusetts. Um, what, what am I missing? Um, Nevada, Arizona. Nevada, yeah, Nevada. So, you know, we, we sweep five states. And, um, well, first of all, it'd be pretty great if Obama, with one month left in office and nothing to lose, did something dramatic. I'm not really holding my breath, but, you know, there's an outside shot. But, um, you know, hopefully Hillary, you know, wins in a, in a major way. And Congress is, um, I don't know if Congress will flip. But um, I think with, you know, more or less... 40% of the country's population living in, in legalized states um, that creates a lot more space for, um, you know, progressive action. And, and there does seem to be, um, you know, bipartisan, not necessarily on, on, on legalizing cannabis, but certainly on sentencing reform um, that you're mentioning, like there does seem to be an emerging realization on all sides that sentencing, you know, nonviolent, offenders to long jail terms is, is ridiculous um, and, and detrimental. So there does seem to be um, a, a real opportunity here, hopefully for Hillary to do something um, dramatic as far as sensing reform, but then also just drug policy generally and certainly with cannabis. Um, but yeah, expecting her to lead. I mean, she's obviously no Bernie, but luckily we do have Bernie kind of holding their feet to the fire um, you know, along with just all the grassroots pressure and, 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 and state level victories that, uh, you know, hopefully will force um, or, or create the opportunities for, for the Hillary administration to do something, you know, real. And yeah. Well, I, I look forward to seeing what happens. Do you feel that that the the fact that it's still federally illegal is actually a benefit while we go through these um, trial and error periods with the state regulations. Um, I mean, not really. I mean, I mean, I know what you're saying, and, and obviously, um, you know, 
there's better and worse um, uh, legalization efforts. I mean, Colorado is clearly better than Washington's, and um, um, and, and we certainly want to, you know, when we end federal prohibition, we want it done right. Um, but at the same time, I mean, we're talking about, you know, how many more citizens' lives ruined, um, you know, waiting for the feds to act. And I was just in Nebraska visiting an organic farm, and literally I was five minutes on the road in a rental car and was pulled over and searched by three state troopers. Um, and and uh, uh, synchronistically, there was a 420-mile marker uh, as I got out on it. But, you know, just realizing, like, shit, you know, like, you're in a red state like Nebraska, and you're just kind of screwed till the feds act. Um, and uh, just kind of a reminder that, you know, we're very fortunate, um, well, certainly myself living in California and anyone living in a more progressive state, that there's states that are just horrible. Um, and uh, especially in the South, that, you know, they just have an insane amount of people locked up or have gone through the jail system a lot of them for, you know, nonviolent drug offenses. And that's not going to change till the feds, you know, act. So, um, well, yeah, certainly we want the federal, uh, you know, when we end federal prohibition, we want it done right. It just, it needs to happen, you know, as fast as possible. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I know that, um, there were a number of, um, presidential pardons that happened over the last few months, uh, for nonviolent drug offenders, you know, which at least is one step in the right direction. But, you know, my, my biggest fear with um, the rescheduling and, and passage of, you know, federal hemp laws is that, you know, some of the larger corporations that have been the biggest opponents to legalization on any level will start to um, take away the purity of the movement as it's happening on, on a grassroots level and, you know, start to get their fingers in it with the pharmaceutical companies. And, and I don't know, it, it might be an unrealistic fear, but it's a fear nonetheless. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's an unfortunate truth that, um, I mean, I mean, there's no doubt that federal pro, like the, 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 you know, by far the larger evil here is, is, is prohibition. But, you know, one thing that we are going to lose is, I mean, there's just a real vibrant, rich counterculture that's been fueled, you know, by cannabis. And that's, you know, you know definitely you're going to get these kind of, you know, the big kind of profit-driven, soulless operators moving into the space, kind of like any other industry in that's just unfortunately a fact of, of American life. But I think, um, you know, the balance that, that if you look at like craft beer and wineries and stuff, I think that there's definitely going to be um, always a space and, you know, more than other industries in cannabis for the kind of soulful, um, really fair, organic, you know, quality growers and, and, and operators. I mean, they gotta. Everyone's got to be smart. It's going to be competitive. The, the the premiums of prohibition are evaporating quickly. Um. So yeah, but we are definitely going to lose. You know, uh, you know, we're not, like we're going to win, but we're definitely going to lose something in, in winning. Yeah. Well, I I agree with that. And let's go back to the philosophy of your your company. I you have something on your website called the all one report, 
which I think is incredibly timely. And one of the reasons I was so interested in interviewing you, especially in light of what's going on in our election season, it's just been astonishing to me. Every single day we're setting new normals for the way um, Americans are treating one another. And it's just so incredibly depressing to me. But at the same time, I see companies like yours that hold this philosophy that we should really um, consider ourselves all one. Tell me a little bit about that from your perspective. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you know, right. I mean, so it's, you know, what we're doing is, um, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, all too rare, but becoming increasingly common that, you know, more and more conscious companies are, um, you know, really carving out space in different industries. And, um, you know, we've been inspired by companies like Patagonia and Equal Exchange and, you know, and vice versa. You know, we, we've inspired others and support others. And, and it, you know, it, it, there is an emerging more conscious culture um, within business. Um, I mean, it's still definitely a minority of business, but growing. Um, so, you know, I do, uh, I am optimistic, you know, it's like when you, you know, we got your soap, you know, we got soap in a, in a really cool way and it's all organic. It's fair trade. It's awesome. We use our profits for good stuff. And, you know, there's companies like Waikiki, Yerba Monte, um, you know, Eco Exchange, Alter Eco, Patagonia, you know, there's these companies that are just beautiful. Um, and, you know, people really do need to understand that, you know, like we vote with our dollars and that we should absolutely be putting our money towards the companies that, um, you know, in take responsibility for how um, the products they make are produced, you know, the human element that the labor is respected, not exploited, and the earth is not harmed in the manufacturing um, and the farming. Um, and just to understand that th these are the companies that deserve support um, and are, you know, really kind of leading the way for a better world. I mean, there's, you know, obviously we need to enact policies and elect the right people. Um, but it's just as important to support the right kind of business um, to create the kind of world we want. Yeah. And it couldn't be more important timing than right now as well. It, it, yeah. it just seems as though there's so much animosity that's being created and so much division, but it just, strikes me with your family history, the things that you talk about, not only in that report, but just in general in the, in the philosophy um, by your, your grandfather and his grandfather about bringing people together in such a way that it, it just creates harmony, um, not just for the earth, but for civilization in general. It's, it seems like you're on the right side of history there. Yeah, no, I mean, ho you know, hopefully, I mean, obviously, we've got some massive challenges ahead of us here with climate change and, um, you know, just figuring out how to collectively live in a way that is sustainable over the long term and, um, you know, respectful of each other and, and our fellow creatures. And, you know, we're living through the sixth grade extinction event. You know, it's human caused and it's a disaster. Um, yeah, but you know, hopefully there's also an awakening and, 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 and that the solution will, um, you know, that we can 
you know, get, you know, you know, liberate our, our sacramental allies, cannabis and psychedelics to really help a lot of us, you know, awaken to our higher selves and, you know, live more authentically and deeply connected to each other in the, in, in the earth. Yeah. And from an environmental standpoint, I think that there really couldn't be anything more important toward, um, uh, fighting climate change than instituting hemp, uh, farming. I think that because it is a carbon positive plant substance and it can actually be restorative to brown fields and, um, nutrient depleted soil and that sort of thing. What do you know about that? Well, um, I mean, there's no doubt that hemp does lend itself to more sustainable production, but, um, I think it's, it's definitely important that, um, that any crop can be grown in a regenerative organic way that, that, that builds soil organic matter that, um, you know, uh, you know, produces food in a healthy way. Um, and especially with climate change that, that, that up to a third of excess atmospheric carbon is from mismanaged soils from, from farm and rangelands that have been overgrazed and, and over farmed and farmed in a way with all these chemicals and fertilizers and pesticides. So that soil biota is dead um, and gone and all the carbon locked up in all this living soil is now up in the air. But, you know, with regenerative organic agricultural practice, we can more quickly within five to 10 years, sequester huge amounts of atmospheric carbon in the form of stable soil organic carbon. Um, soil is the largest land-based sink for, for carbon. And, you know, hemp can definitely be uh, a key part of a regenerative agricultural system and should be. But it's, you know, important that all crops can be grown in a sustainable fashion. Um, even palm oil, like, like, you, like hemp generally is symbolizes you know everything righteous and, and sustainable about agriculture and palm everything evil and destructive but the reality is, is is both can be grown in a sustainable organic way and both can be farmed in a terrible way i mean there's definitely ways of farming hemp that are not cool where they're using synthetic nitrogen and and pesticides and you know just going you know just just farming incorrectly so um and then vice versa palm oil is you know they're they're clear cutting rainforests and, and ruining orangutan habitat in Indonesia, but palm there's nothing about it that um, you know it's actually a really high oil yielding palm and if it's grown correctly it can be a very sustainable crop. So I think it's you know important that you know, obviously hemp is it has a key role to play in a sustainable agricultural system, but that it's the practice that we that we use. Um, to grow all of our crops, um, of which hemp, you know, is, you know, key being both a fiber and a seed crop, but that the organic regenerative practice, I mean, that's, you know, that's the, the, the important, um, dynamic to really support, you know, and all the foods we eat, everything we buy, all our clothes, you know, look for that organic regenerative option. Um, cause that's, you know, that's what's, um, that's, what's crucial but then, I mean, as far as hemp, I mean, there's, yeah, there's just some unbelievable things about hemp and, and the way it can phytoremediate soils and detoxify and remove heavy metals and really bring soils, uh, you know, back to life and just, and also just bring nutrients from kind of deep subsoil and make it bioavailable for subsequent crops grown in a, in a rotation. Um, you know, hemp is just great. Yeah. 
Well, and not to mention, uh, it's a fantastic replacement for some super toxic uh, pharmaceuticals as well. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, um, you know, bar none, the number one, um, you know, I would say deal with, with cannabis. I mean, obviously, I love hemp fiber and I love hemp seed, but the medicinal potential of, of cannabis flowers is, you know, we're just scratching the surface of, of you know, what's to come. And, um, yeah. you know, it's just so much healthier than, than you know, the pharmaceuticals and opiates that are just over-prescribed, overused, and the problems cannabis has of reducing dependency on these um, very harmful pharmaceuticals is massive. And, you know, it also speaks to, like, why and the opposition uh, to to its full um, legalization, but that finally we're breaking through that. Yeah, well, I certainly hope so, and it seems with um, people like you fighting the good fight, it's it's making some headway. And I, I think we have to start wrapping it up here pretty soon, but um, to the voters out there who are on the fence or very skeptical about these legalization measures, what's the takeaway that you might have for them? Oh, well, I mean, it depends. I mean, what kind of voter we're talking about um, to the voters on our side that are just disappointed that the legalization efforts don't go far enough. Um, you know, that's always the case. I mean, it's unfortunate. It's like, you know, what is politically possible in any given cultural political moment and context? And obviously every single one of these state ballot measures can be better and, you know, should be better, but it's what we got. And the reality is, is that if we don't win, then it's just, you know, the, the, the other option is prohibition and that's just a complete disaster. So, we all have to throw down and, and support these measures and talk to our friends and family and, you know, about why ending cannabis prohibition is key. And then people who are just confused, I mean, you know, just, gosh, I mean, the cannabis is, you know, the safest therapeutically active agent known to man. Um, you, you know, it's uh, all of these um, state ballot efforts, you know, have, have stringent regulations about, uh, you know, no, no kids under 21 can have access, you know, I think 18 is more realistic, but anyways, you know, they, they really strictly regulate, regulate the market. Um, kids have even less access, uh, than under prohibition. Um, and there's this other common sense regulations that, uh, are aimed at reassuring kind of nervous middle, you know, kind of soccer mom, uh, types of peeps and, um, you know, I'm pretty confident that we're going to sweep it. Um, unfortunately, we, we have seen some real opposition materialize um, in Arizona for sure, and in, in Massachusetts, Nevada uh, as well. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm, you know, I'm pretty, I'm feeling pretty good about our chances of a sweep. And uh, yeah, it'll be a great day on election day. I certainly hope so. I'm. I'm looking forward to the outcome of this. I feel optimistic like you do. Um, Nate, do you have anything to add or ask? Um, I guess I just, uh, you know, you've talked a little bit about kind of encouraging consumers to participate in this more sustainable model. And do you think that that's um, a change that has to happen kind of at a grassroots level? Or is that something that we really need to put more pressure on our regulators to, to put into law? Yeah, no, it's both. Um, I mean, all of us as consumers, 
you know, need to kind of really understand the brands whose products we're buying and understand their story and what they're trying to do. Um, um, and, and support the really good actors. Um, but at the same time, like a lot of our government policy is, is whipsawed by, um, corporations, you know, the, the really bad actors, um, and we need to change those policies. So it's very uh, important to engage in the political process. And, you know, for example, with agriculture, we, we currently subsidize and encourage farmers to do the exact wrong things. Um, and we need to reward farmers for, for you know, making the, the switch to sustainable organic regenerative practice. And this is a, a battle that's playing out right now on a lot of different levels and at state and federal um, you know, in, re- in regulatory agencies and, and legislatures. Um, so, yeah, you know, you know, going to uh, Organic Consumers Association, for example, is a really good resource for um, understanding uh, both what kind of policies um, and, and legislative fights are important to engage on and then also the kind of good companies that support um, with, our, with our money. Um, and, you know, empower their work in the world. Yeah. Well, also, I invite people to go and take a look at um, websites like Vote Hemp and the Hemp Industries Association to, you know, start reading some of the literature about hemp. But also, there are just so many incredible resources out there about um, medical marijuana, about uh, adult use marijuana and what the implications are for society and all of that. I just invite people to really start doing their research if they haven't already. And um, yeah, so, well, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. I really, really appreciate your insights, David, and I'd really like to keep in touch with you about the work that you're doing and, um, you know, continue to the, the discussion in the near future so yeah right on now thank you for having me and um yeah for sure i mean hopefully we're going to be in a whole other different better world um you know after the election and things will just keep getting better yeah absolutely well thank you that's david bronner of Dr. Bronner's Magical Soaps. And David, your website uh, where people can learn more about you is drbronners.com. Is that correct? Uh, uh, Dr. Bronner without without the uh, S. So yeah. drbronner.com. Okay, that sounds good. And, um, and look for the link to the All One Report, which I think is fascinating and um, really sets the stage for your philosophy. And if you'd like to learn more about today's show and the topic, visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com and click broadcast to find today's episode with David Bronner. I'd also like to thank Nate Nichols for our Marijuana Minute update and a million thanks to our producer, Wendy West, and the team at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine. And thank you all for listening. Tune in next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and until we meet again, stay safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, go to the polls, and make it a great day.